We're going through the book of Colossians verse by verse. And we find today ourselves in Colossians 1. Um, we're going to be going through verses 19 and 20. So would you turn the word of God to Colossians 1 from verses 19 and 20. As you're turning and flicking his pages, we just want to let you know. Is there any anything that is more thrilling, anything more wonderful and soul-gripping than to open our hearts and to gaze that wonderful view of the panoramic, panoramic view of, of our Creator and Redeemer? And that is exactly what we're going to be doing today. We're going to lock in our eyes even more so on Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of this message. We want to see him magnified as per the scripture tells us. Let's read these two verses. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself having made peace through the blood of his cross through him i say whether things on earth or things in heaven now when we look around us we can't help but to see that the world is falling down into this moral decay. Values and beliefs seem to shift with the wind constantly. Marital conflicts or to a subtle rate and rebellions of children are all on the rise. And sin has not left a spot in God's world that it did not stain. We know this. We know that homes are now becoming places of betrayals, of unforgiveness and disappointments and workplaces. There's not any better where it's like large, large sea where the big fish eats a small fish. And the fingerprint of evil is everywhere. But yet, what does the scripture say? Scripture says, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. And you know what, brothers and sisters? There is no time in history that sin has shown its ugly face more than our time. I want to tell you this. It is such a complex subject for another time, but it's true. And so there is no time in history that grace is made more available, more abundant than our time. And since Jesus is the very embodiment of grace, he's the personified of grace, what grace is. And so no other time in all of history than our time, that the church is in need of Jesus to be displayed in His splendid glory, dazzling in His might and beauty. In the midst of this crooked, evil world, Jesus rises and He towers above all. 
as the unshakable, wonderful, loving Savior. And as we are drawn to Him, ever getting nearer and closer to Him, we do find Him all sufficient in all situations. We do. Even in the most painful challenges in life. Brothers, I want to tell you that that this cursed world, with all of its hurts and pains, they are there to drive us to Christ. And they compel us to behold Him seated in His throne so majestically as the exalted one. And as we give Him the place of preeminence, we draw out of Him all that we need. Right? And here's the thing. Not only our challenges that compel us to do that, The very text before us, it constrains us. It begs us to ascribe preeminence to Jesus Christ. Why so? Why? Let's have a quick review of what we've been going through in this series that is called the preeminence of Christ. We found in verse 15 that Jesus is the perfect reflection of the invisible God. He is the known God of the unknown God. Jesus is the firstborn. That is to say, he holds the highest ranking. We move to verse 16. Jesus is a creator of all things. All things lay at Jesus' feet. And then we move to verse 17. And we find that Jesus will outlive all things. He is a sustainer of all things. So far, up to that point, this is the first half of this ancient, marvelous hymn that exalts Christ. Jesus is the preeminent one. Why? Because He's a supreme God, He's a creator of all, He's a sustainer and the eternal. Very good. So far, so good. What about the second half of this ancient hymn that runs from verse 18 to verse 20? What do they tell us of Christ? Why does He have the first place in everything? Last week we looked at verse 18 at a great length and we have learned that Jesus is the head of the body. What does this mean that He's head of the body? It means that He's the sweet lover of His bride, the church. He is the origin the giver of life to His church. Apart from Him, there is no salvation to the church. And He is the firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? He's the firstborn from the dead. It means that Jesus is the devil's conqueror, the death crusher, the sin smasher, and He leads His church into eternal life. And as a result of all of this, Paul then turns that theology into wonderful doxology. And he says in that verse prior to verse to what we read today, and he says, so that he himself, that is Jesus and Jesus alone, he himself will come to have what? First place in everything. 
Are there many lords? First place means Jesus is the Lord of lords. Are there many kings? First place means that Jesus is the King of kings, the Son of righteousness. And I pray that as we begin to unpack the passage before us this morning, that we would exalt Jesus Christ to the highest place of honor where He belongs. That we, that we would joyfully place Jesus in the driver's seat of our lives. That we hand Him the steering wheel. That we let Him control every aspect of our lives. Why? Because... He is the preeminent one. Now, the outline for today are two more compelling reasons why he's the preeminent one. Why is he preeminent? Paul continues and tells us, number one, that's the first outline, because of what dwells in him. Number two, because what is done through him. So we begin with the first point. Why is Jesus preeminent? Because of what dwells in him. What does this mean? Well, now in, in that verse before us, we find that Paul moves the spotlight from looking into Jesus and his relationship to the church to now places the spotlight squarely on the relationship between Jesus and his Father. And he says in verse 19, For it was the Father's good pleasure. For, this three-letter word, it connects the claim that Paul made in the previous verse, and he gives us yet another reason why Jesus is to have the first place. Why is it Jesus above all? Why? It was the Father's good pleasure. Now just stop right there and let's reflect on that just for a little bit. Now the Son has always been a Father's delight. We know this because in the Old Testament, the Father says to the Son, for example, in Psalm 2 verse 8, Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. And the very ends of the earth as your possession. Son, you name it, you got it. Everything is yours. The entirety of the world at your fingertips. Do with the world as it pleases you. And we find in the New Testament, the Son says to the Father in John 17, 24, You love me before the foundation of the world. The son says that to the father. Well, you say, well, you know, God loved uh, the elect before the foundation of the world. But does it make any difference, you know? No, there is this unique and special love that carries with it a particular delight towards the son that is not given to anyone else. It's this, this love to the son is not hidden. It's not obscured in the past. Heaven preached it out loud. Remember when, when Jesus was about to get baptized, while he was getting baptized by John the Baptist, what happened? Matthew 3, 17. 
says, Behold, a voice out of the heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is my only begotten Son, my beloved. These words, my beloved, it carries with it this sense of warmth, tenderness. There's this that strong emotional attachment before, b- between a father and a son. And it's like the father is saying, this is my dearly loved, deeply cherished son in whom I am well pleased. In Christ and in Christ alone and none but Christ, there is all my pleasure. Just though the father is saying, I have searched high and low and my all-seeing eyes scan the entire universe and there is none that brings me pleasure but Jesus Christ alone. I want to say to you, well, if the Father who is perfectionist in his finest choice, had only the Son, Jesus, for his sheer joy, delight. And he was perfectly satisfied with him. Never for once did the Father complain. Never did he ever grumble and say, well, you know what, it's about time I want more than my Son. Never. Then why would we ever look for another source? We God just simply created being. Listen, if Jesus single-handedly is able to satisfy the eternally, infinitely awesome Father who has no beginning, no end, then why can't He satisfy us? We who are but worms. We who are mere poor infinite creatures. Of course He can. And if he alone can, then let us give him the preeminence. Give Christ the highest place in our lives. But wait, there is more in this text. While we're still in that first point, let's have a look even more specifically as what was it that is God's good pleasure. It says, for all the fullness to dwell in him. All the fullness to dwell in him. This is such an audacious phrase. Why? Because this word fullness, can you see this word fullness? Well, this, this was meant to be a technical term that the um, false teachers used to use in their heresies. And how did they used to use it? Well, they taught that the fullness of God, this word fullness, was divided among angelic beings. And all the angelic beings, they filled up the space between earth and heaven. And they functioned as uh, mediators between God and man. And so, go ahead and worship Jesus, but don't just worship Jesus alone. This fullness is divided among angels. Worship other angels also. And so, by using this word, fullness, what Paul was doing is that he was meeting these false teachers' inner turf. They knew exactly what he was talking about. 
Because by saying all the fullness to dwell in Christ, it's as though Paul was getting into the boxing ring and he wasn't just going for jabs. He was going for the uppercut, the final death blow against these false teachers. Now, what I want to do is we want to go even deeper in that verse. And I want to identify three things. Please note three things in this phrase, in this audacious phrase. First, it is an all-exclusive phrase. All-exclusive. First, this word fullness, it mean, what does it mean? It means a totality of divine power. The complete set of God's attributes. But wait a second. Wait a second. It doesn't say it was the Father's good pleasure for the fullness to dwell in Him. What does it say? Let's read the text. Read the text. It says, all the fullness, all the fullness to dwell in Him. That is to say, the full fullness. The whole fullness, the total and sum of all divine power and attributes dwell where? In Christ. Well, since all the fullness, all is in Christ. I.e., what is left in a, a pope or priest or any mere man or woman that we need? And it's as though Paul is saying here, away with icons, away with crosses, away with praying to Mary and the saints. Why? Because there is nothing of God that is outside of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. Jesus holds the patency on eternal life. He has the monopoly over the way to the Father. It is all exclusive. Not just all exclusive, it is also all inclusive. What does that mean? Well, I don't know how people can read this phrase and not conclude that Jesus is God. I mean, what part of all the fullness is hard to understand, right? I mean, think about it. If all the fullness of God dwells in the Son, Jesus Christ, it means all of God's power, all of His glory, all the knowledge and wisdom are in Christ. All of God's love, all of His goodness and compassion in Christ. And so it's as though it pleased the Father for Jesus to be this infinite ocean Infinite height and depth and length and width. And in this vast and mysterious reservoir, there is unbounded grace. There is eternal, infinite mercy. Everything you need is in Christ and in Him alone. You know, Currently, uh, um, in our family devotion, uh, my family and I were, were going through the book of Ecclesiastes. What a, what a book. 
what a what an insight because in in his book book of ecclesiastes we find solomon to be the epic of what all unbelievers um aspire to be to want to be like him he was wise he was wealthy he was powerful king and yet as you read the book of ecclesiastes you find like his middle name is depression right he, he had it all, but he was satisfied with none. And we've been reading the other day about knowledge and how Solomon was saying that as he increased in knowledge, he also increased in pain. Knowledge brought him pain. And so his friendship and money and sexual desires, and we've come to learn that nothing fills the infinite craving of the soul. Here, Christ, here we find he has all that we need, all inclusive. Charles Spurgeon comments on this and he says to unbelievers, what do you want, sinners? What do you want? You want all things, but Christ is all. You want power to believe in Him? He gives power to the weak. Do you want repentance? He was exalted and high to give repentance as well as remission of sin. Do you want a new heart? Christ will give you a new heart and His Spirit will He, will he put within you. You want pardon? Behold, His streaming wounds wash you and be clean. You want healing? He is the Lord that heals. You want clothing. His righteousness shall become your dress. You want preservation. You shall be preserved in Him. You want life. He has said, Awake, you that sleep. Arise from the dead and Christ shall give you life. He has come that we might have life in Him. I want to tell you there is no need that you would ever have that is not found in Jesus Christ. Another thing to note in this verse, in this phrase, is it's a personal phrase. It's a personal phrase. It doesn't say all the fullness to dwell in the doctrine of Christ. As great as the doctrine of Christ is. Nor is it found in his teachings, as important as his teachings are, and we've got to obey them. Nor even in his promises, nor in ministering to him. Unbelievers in his room, nor even in your faith. In him, all the fullness dwell where? In Christ, in His personhood, all the beauty and all the loveliness of God dwell in Jesus Christ. What does this mean? I'm going to tread on dangerous ground. I'm going to dare for the sake of placing Christ in that place of preeminence. I'll dare to explain the unexplainable and May God forgive me and help you if, if you misunderstand me. So please pay, pay attention. Again, often I ask unbelievers, why wouldn't you come to Jesus? Why not? 
Some unbelievers would say, I really want to be saved with all of my heart. I want to come to Christ and believe. So what's the problem? I just, I just don't have enough faith. Others say, oh, I love my sin too much. As if the fullness of God dwells in your faith or in your hatred of sin. I don't know about your Bible, but my Bible doesn't say all the fullness dwells in your faith or in your hatred for sin. It is all in Christ. All the fullness dwell in Christ, in Him. He is the one that is able to save. You come to Him and tell Him, I believe, help my unbelief. Come and lay at his feet and tell him, I don't understand all doctrines about you. I find so much love for sin in me, but I know you are the God man. You're the one who's able to cause me to hate my sin. You, not my faith, not my repentance. You are the one who has the power to save me. All of God's salvation dwells in you. You are the God who saves. Oh, if we just understand this. Oh, if we throw away and do not look internally for salvation, not even in our virtues, but we look, look, Upon him. Oh, if we but not look upon our faith or even repentance, but we look upon him. What about faith? Looking is the very faith that you need. Just look upon Christ, rest in Christ. Again, while we're in this point, before we move to the second point, Now, I want to address these believers among us here. I want to say something to you one more time. When we want to examine our spiritual growth, and again, I'm treading dangerous ground. I pray that I would not be misunderstood. Please forgive me if, I, if you misunderstand. Brother, how's your walk with the Lord? How's your growth? Well, I'm studying the doctrine of Christ. Wow, so profound, so deep. Your spiritual growth is not found in how much you know about the doctrine of Christ or the obedience of, of the teaching of Christ. But in Christ, what does this mean? It means that when you read about him, when you want to follow his teaching, it is not merely do's and don'ts, nor is it about accumulating wealth of knowledge that you never knew before, but it is because of Christ you study him, because of Christ you obey him. You want to find Christ, that's why you do what you do. You do what you do. Jesus. You want to find him in every passage. You want to find him in every obedience. You want to find him in every cross that you bear. 
and you take away Christ, it doesn't matter what you throw in a basket of holiness. Irrelevant. Irrelevant. Why? All the fullness dwell where? In him. Let Christ be exalted above all. He reigns over all. Why? The entirety of all who God is. The exhaustion of God in Jesus Christ. That's the first point. And the second point. Jesus is the preeminent because of what is done through him. What is done through him. And so we continue reading now verse 20. Let's read it together. And it says, And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now, if you don't know, this is one of the most misinterpreted piece of text by many false teachers, primarily by false teachers that we classify or categorize and we say they're universalists who believe everybody will be saved. And they say, look, it says all things are reconciled through Christ. There you go. All people will be saved irrespective whether they believe in Christ or not. God loves everybody, and because He loves everybody, everyone will be saved, without exception. So they go to this verse to defend their false teaching. Really? What about the great white throne? What happened to that? What about the wrath of God against sinners? What about... The eternal punishment that sinners who reject Christ will have to suffer forever. As per Matthew 25 verse 46. What about the eternal contempt in Daniel 12 verse 2? What about the scripture that speaks of the smoke that would rise day and night forever and ever? If all things will be saved, does that mean... Satan and all his demons will be saved too. If all things will be saved, and all things, as we've discussed earlier, would include the angels that never sin. Why do they need to be saved? What are they saved from if they never sin? And if the material world is part of all things, does that mean my socks will be saved? Does that mean the logs that I just burnt last night in uh, my fireplace will be saved? It's absurd. It makes no sense. It's a ridiculous way of interpreting this text. So, how do we interpret it right? In what sense all things will be saved or will be reconciled? Well, first of all, we need to come to a proper definition of what all things mean. Now, what does all things mean? All things mean all things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven. He mentions all things seven times in his, in, in his hymn. And it's all created things. Animals, angels, atoms, people, 
He says, all things. Jesus died. He shed his blood to reconcile all things. Now pay attention to this very important detail. Reconcile all things to whom? Not to God. To himself. The God-man. The God-man. The human nature and the God nature joined together to himself. What does this mean? It doesn't mean that all things will be saved. But what it means that all things are placed exactly where they should be under Jesus' feet. All things are subjected to Jesus. Okay. Reconcile does not mean that all things are in good relationship with Jesus Christ as though all things are saved. No, it means all things are in the right, proper relationship with Jesus Christ. I, I don't understand. This, is, this seems to be difficult. Can you please explain? I'm more than happy to explain it to you what this means. When we go back... To Genesis 3. Since the fall. What happened? Sin ruined the universe. The whole cosmos was in chaos. Even till now. Right? From the heart of man. To the heavens where Satan has fallen from. To the plantations. Nothing in all things that sin did not pollute. And I'm talking about the effect of sin. Nothing was at the place where there ought to be. But when this exalted Jesus Christ bore our sins, shed his blood and rose again, the cross stands as the post in history that changed the course of all things. Sin has been conquered by Christ. The demand of the law has been satisfied. The curse is lifted. And by this one single act of obedience, God, the God-man, Jesus Christ, was exalted to where? To the Father's right hand. And what's he doing? From this awesome position, he rules all things. He rules all things with mighty power and authority. Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That was after he rose from the dead. Paul gives us even greater clarity in what this means. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 21 and 22, Paul says when Jesus ascended to, to heaven, to be seated at the right hand of the Father. It says, <clears throat> far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. That is the reconciliation of all things. And gave him as head over all things to the church. God raised Jesus to be this brilliant star shining above all things. He exalted Christ like an eagle soaring majestically far and high above all things. And everything is brought at his feet. 
And in this context, through the blood of Christ, he reconciled all things to himself. Still a little bit hard to understand? Well, let's break it down. For example, how did Jesus, through his death, reconcile the devil to himself? How did he do that? He placed the devil in the right, proper relationship to Jesus Christ, with reference to Jesus. Colossians 2, 15, it gives us this vivid picture of how the blood of Christ reconciled the devil to himself. He says in verse 15, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them having triumphed over them through him. These rulers and authorities are the evil spirits. Too hard to understand. Paul here is borrowing an, an illustration, analogy, something used to happen back in those days when a Roman general won a war on a, on, a, on a foreign land and he conquered a new land for Rome. He used to celebrate his victory. How did the Roman generals used to celebrate their victories? Well, the Roman general would go back to Rome. He would undress his prisoners, tie them naked um, to a chariot along with all the spoils that were won in the war. And then he would get onto this chariot and then begin to parade that triumph. And what happens to the, to the captives, to the prisoners? Well, they would have this sense of shame, sense of defeat as they're being dragged on the streets of Rome behind a chariot. And Paul here paints his picture that Christ, the divine general, our commander-in-chief in the Lord's army. He rose out of his grave as this warrior, conquering king. And as he ascended to glory, it was a great triumphal procession as he stripped the demons of their power. He disgraced them. He shamed them in their defeat. This is our Lord. He's high and lifted up. And this is how he reconciled the demons. Placed them in the rightful, proper place beneath his feet. And we know that one day, Jesus Christ himself will cast Satan and all the demons once and for all in the lake of fire to bring utter destruction. Not only strip them of their power, but total destruction. What about sinners that reject Christ? How, how does that reconciliation happen? What does that mean, reconciled? Well, the blood of Christ is like this mighty river. And as those sinners continue to reject Jesus Christ, they will be swept away and be brought before Jesus Christ in a divine, divine courtroom. And as Jesus assumes the position of being their judge, he would say to these unbelieving sinners, I offered my blood for your sin, but you rejected my offer. 
I threw to you the rope of salvation. I stretched freely out my, my pierced hands in, in, in my mercy. And instead of gripping onto me, you spat on me. You said, oh, I don't want your salvation. I don't want your forgiveness. And now you're damned forever. This is how the doomed sinners will be reconciled to Christ. They will be placed in a total submission to Christ, in a right relationship towards Him. What about the redeemed sinners? Redeemed sinners will be a topic of its own next week. Such a huge and important subject. So we'll leave it for next week for the next two verses. But ultimately, Christ will be like that son of the universe, the S-U-N, son of the entire universe. And all things will orbit around him. Philippians 2.10 says, So that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He reconciles all things. Whether willingly or unwillingly, voluntarily or involuntarily. And John echoes this, by the way. John echoes this verse in Revelation 5.13 and he says, Every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. So to reconcile all things, it means that Jesus transcends all things. Jesus is in charge of all things. And right now, yes, he's ruling from heaven. But one day he will rule physically from earth. How can we not be in awe of such a God-man? How can we not give him all honor? Who wouldn't want to ascribe preeminence and supremacy to his name? How do I do that? How? Have you surrendered your life to this triumphal Savior? Will you give him your soul to preserve it for you and bow before him willingly? Or will you be swept away? Before that courtroom among all unforgiven sinners. And involuntarily you still will be forced to bow before him. What would it be? Oh, the invitation is given to you even right now. As I speak to you, it is God that is pricking your conscience and wants you to be drawn to Christ. Friend, come to him now. Come, tell him, Jesus, you are the preeminent one, the exalted one. I give you my soul. You preserve it for me. You look after it for me. I believe you can. Brothers, sisters, as we come to the end of this wonderful 
glorious hymn. And as we conclude it now, how, how do we ascribe preeminence to Christ? How does he have the first place? What does that mean for you? Do you have family? Do you work? Do you have friends? Hey, how about this one? Do you work out? Do you own a car? First place means that you make Jesus the top priority. The main event. The center of our lives. The reason for every season. For him to be the first place in everything. It means he is to be the captain of your ship. The king of your castle. He is the real deal. He is the one that calls the shot. He is the one that sets the standards over your life. He's the one that leads your way. He is the boss of your family. The boss of your car. The boss of your work. And the boss of your life. So as we come to the end. And we see. Everything in him is so glorious. Everything outside of him is awesome. As he is the one that reconciles all things to himself. What can we do? But to shout for joy as the psalmist tells us. And adoration. And that we would exalt and praise the name of Jesus. He is our mighty redeemer. The one above all. The one who has conquered sin and death. The one who reigns eternally. The one who reconciles all things to himself. Let's pray. Father, if you are so satisfied in Christ, why is it that we struggle to do so? Father, what sins in our life that obscure our view of that such a glorious son of yours? And Father, if Jesus is that powerful and that mighty, What would hinder him from cleansing us from those sins that hinder us from viewing him? Lord, we need him. We need him in our lives. We need him every moment of the way. We need him every breath that we take. Help us, Lord, to see nothing is worthy to be exalted in our lives, in our relationships, in our possessions. But Christ and Christ alone. In Jesus' name, amen.